As the kids are heading out, uh, we are continuing in Leviticus. And for those of you who haven't been with us all summer or maybe haven't been with us at all, boy, Leviticus. Um, we have spent much of the summer talking about how it, Leviticus gives us a language, a vocabulary for worship, our worship today. And we're in the latter half of Leviticus where we're now actually seeing that vocabulary put into practice, sort of the grammar and syntax. How do we worship in practice based upon the things that God reveals to us through this interesting and at times odd book for us? And to enter into our latest chapter, chapter 19, as we uh, bid a fond farewell to summer, sadly this weekend, I'd like to ask you a question. And the question is this, when is the last time you felt holy? When's the last time you felt holy? Now, I imagine what some of you are thinking. Happy? Yeah. Busy? Definitely. Excited? Sure. Maybe even deeply moved, perhaps, but holy. It's not a feeling that most of us think or associate with ourselves. But take a moment. Think about it. When's the last time you felt holy? Was it yesterday? A week ago? The feeling of holiness is rare for us. When I say holy, in our world, holiness is reserved for someone else. Holiness is something that we perceive as being experienced by the rare individual. A deeply spiritual person like, let's say, Mother Teresa, who dedicates her whole life to helping others. We imagine that only other people, people who live in faraway places, people who are fundamentally different from us, are holy, but not us. Holy is not a word we often use in reference to ourselves. We don't tend to think of our own lives as holy. We don't ever anticipate feeling holy. If I were to say, well, when do you think is the next time you'll feel holy? You might scratch your head. And, and that's a problem because there's a huge disconnect. It's a huge disconnect from what our Father declares to us, what our Father declares about all of us, about who we are meant to be. And as Mary Jo comes up and reads our scripture to us this morning from Leviticus 19, you'll see exactly what I mean. We're in Leviticus 19. Be, feel free to use the Bible that's there in the pew. As the slide's on the screen, the page number will be there as well, where you can find it. The scripture today is in Leviticus 19, verses 1 through 18, found on page 83 in your pew Bible. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Each of you must respect his mother and father and you must observe my Sabbath. I am the Lord, your God. Do not turn to idols to make gods or cast metal for, for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because he has desecrated what is holy to the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people. 
When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name or so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Here ends the scripture for today. Well, you heard it. When's the last time you felt holy? Because as we come to Leviticus chapter 19, the Lord spells it out to us through Moses yet again. When he tells Moses, the starting point of this chapter is say to the entire assembly, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. But what does this practically, functionally look like? The experience of holiness. As we dive into chapter 19, as you continue to hear Mary Jo read, you might think the answer is follow the rules. I mean, at first glance, the Lord appears here to simply reiterate what's known as the law, his top ten, more commonly known as the Ten Commandments. And again, remember the framework of Leviticus, if you haven't been with us, the framework is that is the Lord is educating the Israelites. They've been in centuries of slavery in Egypt. He's in the wilderness educating the Israelites about how to be his people, who he is. And so very much he is, since it's the, you know, the first day of school, he's communicating to them in a very clear and direct way. And that's why you see all these thou shall nots or if-then statements. And again, uh, I experienced the first day of school with my kids. Both of them are in high school now. School will be starting at Grace this week. And the first day of school, think of God in this situation being like your mom or your teacher, you know, as you're getting ready for your first day. Remember to share. You know, don't, if someone does something wrong, go tell the teacher. Don't do something on your own. Make good choices. This is what God is doing. God is basically saying Speaking in a very clear, direct way, this is how you ought to act. And I think if we look a little closer, rather than get caught up in the particulars of what God says, we see that holiness embodies more than just a laundry list of do's and don'ts. When your mom or your dad or your teacher on that first day of school is kind of going through the list and you're like rolling your eyes going, yeah, I know, yes, I know, look what place when I cross the street, right? If someone hits me, I don't hit back. Okay, share my lunch. Raise my hand if I have a question. I get it. More than a laundry list of do's and don'ts, what's here in this beautiful set of rules, very concrete standards, is a broader vision for community. 
And again, let me just recap what you heard Mary Jo read. Summarize it. Uh, some, just highlights. Leave some fruit, some grain in the fields for the poor. Be honest. Don't steal. Don't take advantage of another person's weakness for your own gain or pleasure. Be consistent in how you live and interact with everyone, rich or poor, relative or foreigner. And chapter 19 is just the beginning. God's going to continue to come back to these ethics, as we talked about last week, these practices. And we can get caught up in the particulars, which we should pay attention, but miss the overall idea, which is this is what worship and practice looks like. This is what life together in worship of God looks like. And the key, really, what holds all of these seemingly random rules together is the principle behind the law. A single word. It can be reduced to a single word, and it's one that we don't often equate with holiness. Yet, ironically, God does all the time. Later on, in case we miss it in Leviticus, Jesus will make this association for us of what is the principle behind the law. When according to Jesus, he will say the law, holiness, both of them, all come down to just one thing, love. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and quoting Leviticus 19, loving your neighbor as yourself. And that's what I want to do this morning, to get at this idea of the experience of holiness, to break down that simple statement, the second half, of what Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So to begin, what is love? Love is more, clearly as Leviticus reveals, more than a feeling. Love involves action. If you go back again, if you have your Bible open and you look at what Mary Jo read from chapter 19, love is, an, is, is action, it's not just a feeling. A lot of times when we evoke love, it's about what we feel, but there's brass tacks here, there's action that's involved. And what Leviticus highlights are three things that you see in all of these particulars. The first is, love is about avoiding actions that will cause conflict. Love doesn't provoke trouble. And if you remember it all, maybe it was read at your wedding, 1 Corinthians 13, love is kind. Love doesn't boast. Love doesn't dishonor others. And you have some particulars here of love and community doesn't cause conflict. It doesn't lead to actions. It avoids actions that are going to provoke trouble. That's one. Second in this list, love is about getting involved. Love is not about turning a blind eye or a deaf ear to what's going on around you. Love is talking straight to the people around you. Love is confronting trouble when you see it. Otherwise, I don't know if you caught it, if you don't do that, you're not only not loving, but you're complicit in the guilt in the community. And again, back to 1 Corinthians 13, so you see the scriptural harmony here. Love always protects, Paul writes. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. And truth can only be rejoiced in if truth is declared. And Leviticus says, loving each other, loving your neighbor as yourself, is about getting involved, not turning a blind eye and a deaf ear. And then the third thing, the third component of love and action, is love is about seeking justice and pursuing reconciliation. Don't hold on to grievances, Leviticus says. Don't take matters into your own hands. And again, Paul echoes this ethic of love when he writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that love keeps no records of wrongs. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not just a feeling. It's love in action. Beloved, interesting to say that word. I say it a lot, but beloved be loved, the action in that phrase. Love is more than ideals. 
We can talk a good game when it comes to love, but more, love is more than our ideals. Love is more than our platitudes. It's more that we write on our cards or what we say in our songs or in our conversation. That matters. We should speak words of love, but love is more than just words. Love, Leviticus brings out for us, is messy. Love is being hands-on. Love is having both feet in. Love is the commitment to act justly. Love is having the courage, taking the risk to walk with integrity. Love, in other words, true love, divine love, the kind of love that we don't often evoke, the kind of love we don't often think about, true love, divine love, holy love, is love in the flesh. It's engagement with the practical realities of life, getting into what's really happening in our lives. That's what Jesus models for us. That's what Jesus is for us. And that's why Jesus equates with this ethic of love. Love, in other words, to put something that maybe we see every day, love in action, according to Leviticus, is the difference between feeling for that person who you see as you get on the freeway or you drive down the road who's down on their luck. Love is the difference between feeling for that person by the side of the road and actually stopping Rolling down your window, pulling over your car, making eye contact, engaging them, and being involved with their soul, with their life. That's love. And, and that's how Jesus framed it for us. That's, that's how Jesus framed it for us, to help us to appreciate the practice of love, that it's how it's tied to the experience of holiness. He told us a story that we all know, we learn in Sunday school, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you'll remember the setup to this parable, and many of us still sit in this place even though we know this story. The setup to Jesus telling this story is that the teachers and leaders of Jesus' day, the generations, think about this, who grew up learning and memorizing Leviticus as children, they had become overly fixated on the particulars of God's instructions, sometimes even obsessively worried about them. Can anyone relate to that? And that's the danger of rules. We need to acknowledge that. That's the danger of rules. Rules are good, but the danger of rules is they can become an end in, of, in and of themselves, that we can follow them just for the sake of avoiding trouble. And some of us might go, well, what's wrong with that? In the short term, nothing. It's good to avoid trouble. But all of us know if we've lived long enough, if you just follow the rules to avoid trouble, eventually your trouble's going to find you. Because when we just get so focused on the periphery, so focused on keeping the boundaries... What happens is that, that focus, that obsession for many of us causes us to forego what the rules are really about, which is developing in us, cultivating us in us proper discernment, even what we would call common sense. And so the leaders of the day, the teachers, are clearly struggling with this, and, and one of them finally just articulates it out loud to Jesus in the midst of ongoing debate about the law. As Jesus pushes us beyond the letter of the law into the heart of who God is, the teachers and leaders are unsettled by this. As Jesus is pushing us to internalize the principle, the crux, the heart of any life-giving law, the spirit of the law, which is love, finally someone just says what everybody else is thinking. Because Jesus basically quotes Leviticus and says, look, if you want to know what love is, understand love by looking at its object. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what our Father tells us. Love me, the Lord your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But if you want to know what love is, look at its object. Love your neighbor as yourself. And finally, someone just says what we're all thinking. But who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And Leviticus, Jesus is, is really hearkening back to something that's already in Leviticus. 
And that's the second part I want to take out is we've talked about love, but love our neighbor. Who's our neighbor? From one perspective, from the story that Jesus gives us, when we think about neighbor, our neighbor is the other. Our neighbor is the other. We are uh, the other. And the other, the way I can help you appreciate this word is that in our own lives, we, if you're like me, and I'm just being honest about this, we generally tend to be more committed to our own flesh and blood. We generally tend to put them first. We tend to prioritize them. We're generally more committed to our own flesh and blood rather than, say, a stranger. Someone who we aren't related to genetically, relationally, and someone who we don't even relate to, meaning we don't get them. They fall down on the priority list, right? They're a stranger to us. And our tendency, we all talk about, is we, our tendency is to want to keep things in the family in our lives, right? We keep it in the family. We keep it in within the circle of our friendships. I mean, we definitely don't want to open ourselves up to our enemies. I mean, we don't want to open up ourselves to someone who we don't like. Because generally, if we don't like them, we don't trust them. But Leviticus... Before Jesus even tells this story, Leviticus says that our neighborhood has to be bigger than that. We're told in Leviticus to include foreigners and aliens. We're told to include strangers and enemies. And then Jesus, through this parable, because obviously we've missed it, tells us a story that once again reveals widen the circle of community. And the story, if you remember the punch of the story, I'm not going to retell it, the punch of that story is that even someone with bad theology... Even someone with detestable worship practices. Oh my gosh, they worship like that? Even someone with unclean living standards. Even a Samaritan can be good. Why is this so hard for us? Why is this story still resonate? It seems so common sense and yet it still cuts. It cuts us. It cuts against us. Do you remember, and if you weren't with us, I'll recast this for you. When we were talking about Leviticus, I talked about this picture that many of us have seen or have grown up with that is, has a lot of truth to it, but it's also a little bit out of focus for us. And it's this picture of the chasm, right? This, this giant gap. And on one side is us, and on the other side is God. Do you remember me talking about this, those of you who are with us? And, and the, the thing that we, we, we've been taught with this is that that chasm is sin, and God can't get to us because sin is just so bad. And so we're over here, and we can't get to God because sin is so bad. And so the cross drops down. Jesus comes, and that allows God to get to us and us to get to God. And I told you that there's a lot of truth in that picture, but there's also a lot of things that are wrong with that picture. And that what I left you with is that if we think that God can't get to us, if we think that God can't get to us, that the only way God can get to us is through the cross, if that's how it works, then what that automatically will do for us is that that will give us the potential to perceive ourselves as God's people once we get across the bridge, across the cross, as having a chasm between us and those who are not in relationship with God. We're over here and they're still over there. This misunderstanding of the picture allows us to create or validate a divide between us and them. And it's this kind of thinking, and this is why it's a problem, this kind of thinking and these kind of behaviors that, that lead to what we describe as being holier than thou. Through this distorted picture of the gospel of why and how Jesus saves us, what happens is we actually stand opposed and separated from those on the other side of the chasm. We stand on the side of safety, of salvation, and say to those across from us, you know, I'd love to help you. I'd love to come and help you, but you got to get across. you got to go the way of the cross if you want to be where I am, if you want to be with me. 
But what I told you several weeks ago, and for those of you who weren't here, what's wrong with that picture is that we, God doesn't need the cross to get to us. That chasm is not about God being unable to get to us. That is faulty. We even see it in Leviticus before we get to Jesus. The cross is not what allows God to be with us. God has always been with us. God always has stand, stood with us. God's been with us from the very beginning. Building the bridge of the cross, building it underneath our feet. We saw that he was building it already in Leviticus. He is leading us by the cross and beyond the cross to where we are. And that's the gap. The gap is where we are, where, who we think we are. And the, on the other side is who we were meant to be, who we truly are in Christ. God isn't separated from us, but he leads us across that false reality into a true reality of who we are. He leads us to where we were always intended to be, which is in relationship with him. And so that means that our call as disciples, as followers of this God, as followers of Jesus, is not to stand on the other side waiting in safety and in comfort when it comes to our neighbor. Our call, as it's recorded here in Leviticus and as Jesus tells through this story, is that we don't sit on the other side and point to the bridge, the cross, and direct them to come over to the other side. Our call is to come over to where Jesus is. To come over to where we once were. To come over to where the unclean, the broken, the imperfect and hurting are. And to lift them up and take them by the hand. Carry them on our backs if necessary. And lead them into the promised land. To lead them into the life we are all called. We are all invited to live in Christ. If you weren't with us last week, we talked about blood and sex. Boy, did you miss a, one, a heck of a sermon. And during that sermon... There was a moment where there was an impulse, and I talked about why this was not a referendum on homosexuality or gay marriage. And I made a statement, and I want to come back to this, that the reason why I wasn't going to engage it, amongst other things that I said, was that what we need to hear instead is that our practice as a whole, not just grace, as the church as a whole, we're all part of the same body, we have been not Christ-like in our engagement with the gay and lesbian community. That was a hard word. It's hard to say. Hard for hard, it's hard to acknowledge that. And some, of us, some in our community push back. And that's fine. That's, that's what this is about. And wanted, what do, you, what do you mean by that? What do you mean we're not Christ-like? And here is right where I can come back to it. What I mean by unchristlike is we have not been loving to the gay and lesbian community. Don't nuance and don't import what you think I'm saying in that. Let me just simply say this. We are called to love them. And to love them means we are caused to embrace them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. Go back to what Leviticus outlines about being in community with the alien and the foreigner. Remember the three things I told you? I'll go back to them again. Love is not causing conflict in the community, not stirring up trouble. And within the Christian community, within the Christian community, because of our frustration with homosexuality, because of our uncomfortability, we have placidly sat by, sat by and we have allowed and sat by and allowed the, in our vernacular to say stuff like, well, that's so gay. Or he's so gay. I've seen it. Not amongst adults, but even among kids. We say it and we laugh. That's not loving to those who are gay and lesbian. That is stirring up trouble in that community. That creates a separation for us. We have, in the midst of that happening, when that takes place, sat in silence as the community. We have never stood up and said, you know what? We shouldn't speak like that about our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters. We instead have said, well, you see, the reason why that happens is because they're living in sin. The reason why that's happening is because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. If you don't want to have that label, then live the way that God tells you to. That's standing on the other side of the bridge and saying, hey, you know, I'd love to help you out, but you've got to come where I am. 
That's Leviticus sitting in silence, turning a blind eye and a deaf ear. And then the third thing I talked about was that Leviticus says, don't take matters into your own hands. Don't sit in judgment. And beloved, we've been sitting in judgment on the gay and lesbian community. I'm not saying there's not real issues for us to discuss. I'm not saying there's not real disagreement. You go back and listen to my sermon. There's tension there. What I'm saying is we have chosen to sit in judgment rather than to act in love. That has been our predominant play. When in the Christian community, we can rally to fight against gay marriage, but in the Christian community, it's like a drop in the bucket when any church, not just one, but any church, protests with signs that says God hates fags, and we say nothing, we have not been loving. And, and here's the part that's hard, is that because we haven't been loving, there's, a, there's a, an, an added burden Many of us want to get right to the conversation about the rightness and wrongness and talk about it, and I get that, and it's a conversation that needs to happen, but what we fail to see is until we make up that deficit of love, until we change that practice, acknowledge that, we can't have that conversation. We have no legitimacy in having that conversation because we have not loved our neighbor. The message that we've been given to share with those who are different from us, the other is not to come over. It's not that we're holier than now, but it's that in Christ, we are all made holy. That's our message. Our neighbor is the other, the unfamiliar stranger, even the perceived enemy. We are to treat someone who is different from us, foreign to us, as one of our own. That's our neighbor, according to Leviticus, according to Scripture, according to Jesus. But I'm going to push this a little bit further, because let's not forget that our neighbor, when we use that term, is also the person who's right next to us, the person you're sitting next to today. Because what I'm getting at is, sometimes when we talk about our neighbor and the parable of the Good Samaritan is, is fantastic, but sometimes we can so emphasize dissimilarity when we talk about our neighbor that we can forget that proximity matters too when we talk about our neighbor. Remember, the codes that are spelled out here in Leviticus are about how we live peacefully and interact positively every day with the person who lives right next door to us, regardless of whether they're similar or dissimilar to us. Let me help you to get what I'm going, where I'm going here. I mentioned earlier that our predisposition, mine is, that we tend to want to keep things in the family, right? We tend to want to keep it within our circle of friends. I think we all agree with that. We have that bias, okay? But if we're honest... The truth is, when it comes to our neighbor, sometimes the hardest people to love are the ones that are closest to us. Sometimes the hardest people to love are the ones that we're closest to. I mean, what I'm getting at is there's a lot of false, insincere love when it comes to our family and friends. There's a lot of false, insincere love. In the name of love, some of us are constantly telling our family and our friends, I told you so. I told you that was going to happen. I tried to warn you. You didn't ask my opinion, but I gave it to you anyway. I told you so. And, and the truth is, is that's false, insincere love, because if we really just lay it out here, we're not pointing out all their mistakes, their flaws, all the things they're doing wrong. I mean, we've got to be honest on this one. We're not pointing all that out as much out of concern for them as we are trying to protect or defend ourselves. Hey, if you're going to be my son, if I'm going to be associated with you and this family, you need to understand that's just not how we do things. And so I'm pointing this out because this is good for you, but honestly, it's also really good for me because if you screw up, I look really bad. Others of us have a different 
lack of sincerity or falsehood in our love. Others of us, in the name of love, are part of what I like to call the conspiracy of silence. We know that someone in our family or someone among our friends is doing something wrong. We know it. We know they're hurting themselves or potentially hurting someone else. But we say nothing. Because the price of telling the truth, if we're really honest, is too high. We run the risk of losing the relationship. We run the risk of damaging the network of relationships. The whole community could blow up. So we say nothing to them. The tragedy about this kind of love, this false, insincere love, is we say nothing to them, but we all talk amongst ourselves about it. We got no problem talking to each other. You know, somebody ought to say something. I, you know, I, I said, well, I'm not saying it. You should say it. Well, somebody should say something. And we're all talking about it, but no one's talking to the person who needs to hear it. That's not love. That's not true love. That's not biblical love. The Bible says that loving our neighbor means speaking the truth in love. It means caring enough to confront. Loving our neighbor isn't always about engaging a crowd or a group of people. Here's another thing about neighbor that we can often do. We can often make neighbor a category. And let me just say something, and please hear this carefully. Collecting food or money to send people ravaged by disaster or war is worthy, and one might even say it's a loving action, and I wouldn't disagree with them. It is a loving action, but hear this. That is not the kind of love that's being talked about here. The reason being is that if we're really honest, as loving as an action as that may be, it's not truly possible to love crowds of people. If you've experienced love, if you've even tasted it the way that Jesus speaks of it, Leviticus evokes it, love like that is only possible with people I know, with people I encounter, with people on the road in need of my help. In other words, beloved, if we're really getting at who's our neighbor, loving our neighbor is about getting up close and personal. It's about knowing the name of our neighbor. It's about looking into the eyes of our neighbor. It's about listening and sharing in the life of our neighbor. We're going to have a phenomenal barbecue afterwards, and one of the benefits of that time is we get to be together. How much of our conversation will not just be superficial? How much of our conversation will actually be about looking each other in the eye, knowing each other's names? There right now, and this is nothing wrong with this, no guilt and shame, there are people in this room who don't know other people in this room. And I'm not talking about people who've been just coming for the first time. I'm talking about you've been going to the same church for years and you don't know some of the people in this room. And you're always embarrassed because you're like, oh, how are you new? Is this your first week at Grace? And you think, oh gosh, when I get that comment, I've been coming here for 10 years. <laughs> we have an opportunity to look each other in the eye, to get to know each other's name, and more than that, to listen and share each other's stories. That's the kind of love that God's invoking here. It's sharing in the life of our neighbor. And this is hard. This is challenging. How can we be a part of a church and we don't know everybody? And we can come up with all the, the ancillary reasons. Oh, we have two services and we don't go in the same circles. And now all that's fine. But the reason why this kind of love, up close and personal love, looking in the eye, knowing the name, listening and sharing doesn't happen a lot is because, frankly, it's inconvenient. Because practicing this kind of love is hard because, you know what? It changes me. It changes me 
Because here's the thing, and this is why God is so awesome. God tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves because loving our neighbor reveals how much I really love myself. Loving my neighbor, truly loving my neighbor reveals how much I love myself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what our Father says, but here's, here's the last part. Here's the, the hardest truth of all. We don't really love ourselves. We don't rightly love ourselves in a divine or biblical sense. The love that we have towards ourselves is like all of the rest of our love apart from our Father. It's a false love. It's either one of two extremes. Apart from our Father, our love of ourselves is either the narcissism of a self-love, puffing ourselves up, stroking or inflating our own ego, or it's the attraction of self-loathing, putting ourselves down, beating ourselves up, being loved because we're so pitiful. And both are born, whether it's the, lo the love of narcissism, love of self, or the, the attraction of self-loathing, both are born of the same stuff, insecurity and fear. No wonder being holy, experiencing holiness seems impossible to us. That seems like shooting for the moon because most of us struggle to even feel lovable. I mean, how are we supposed to experience the sacredness of the Lord's presence? Maybe that's why Leviticus is really off-putting. It's not all the blood and guts. It's this idea of be holy as I am holy. How are we supposed to experience that, even conceptualize what that's like? How are we supposed to make ourselves feel the right things when we are, in honesty, feeling together a lot of other things, things that are just so wrong? I mean, how do we remain loyal and committed to other people when we are so often inclined to rebel and to quit? How do we assert that we feel loving when for many of us what we feel more often than not is anger and resentment? How do we honestly say that what we're doing for others is really about them when so much of it is coming out of our own ambition, our own insecurity? How do we deny? How do we look each other in the face? That's why we don't look each other in the eye. How do we deny that we're frequently jealous of each other? How do we deny that we sometimes have near blasphemous feelings of disrespect and mockery towards other people? That that's the reason why we don't speak to them in love? Because that's hard, but it's easy to rip them apart, rip them to shreds in front of other people. It's like a fire that gets hotter and hotter as people pile on. Once one person gives the, sort of gives permission, we all just do it and it feels so good. How do we deny that so many of our actions arise out of our own stubbornness and wounded pride? That that drives us so much. How do we pretend that right up at the heart of it, where we should feel faith and prayer, we come to church and we, feel we're, we should feel faith and prayer in our lives, we should feel faith and prayer, and yet many of you confess to me, and, there's, and this is just bringing it out, that what we actually feel in our lives is boredom. What we actually feel in our lives is disinterest. What we actually feel in our lives is an inner deadness. Here's the thing, my brothers and sisters in Christ, so many of us are terrified or guilt-ridden over having feelings like these. So many of us, we'd be saying them out loud. You some of you may even be shaking, if not on the outside and the inside. It's, we're so terrified of acknowledging that we have these feelings. We're guilt-ridden that this is even a part of our lives. But beloved, hear this. These feelings are normal. They prove that we're human. They reveal our continued need for our dependence upon our Father. 
Being in this world, being in relationship with God and serving him does not require that we have to step outside of ourselves or deny our own experience, that we have to deny what we feel. It's like I've always tried to teach my children. As God has taught me, it's not that our feelings are bad. It's about what we do with our feelings. It's about being dependent upon the Lord. Being holy as God is holy demands that we're honest about our feelings. That we submit our experiences to our dad. Being a follower of Jesus, and some of us have been sold a wrong bill of goods, being a follower of Jesus isn't about our morality. It isn't about living out the commands of love on our own. Our goodness as a Christian is never, hear this, never a matter of hitting the mark. It's never about achieving a gold star. It's not about getting straight A's on your report card. The goodness of being a Christian, our goodness as Christians, is about realizing and releasing our foolish insistence that we can help ourselves. That we are capable of loving God and each other, of offering the kind of love that makes others live through our own will and our own strength. Only God can give that kind of love. The kind of love that makes us live. Being a follower of Jesus, and hear this as, as a release, hear this in free, as freedom. Being a follower of Jesus is not about figuring out right from wrong as much as it is living in reality or unreality. It's either about living in and with Christ or living for yourself. Experiencing and manifesting the holiness of God comes from allowing ourselves to be weak, to be vulnerable, to be naked and unafraid without shame, as our ancestors were at the very beginning before it all got messed up. It's about allowing the wonder of God's creative self-sacrifice, his self-giving love for us in Christ to knock us off our feet and to change our habits and our practices. Here's the beauty. That's why I love Jesus. This is why Jesus is compelling to me. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that we struggled with loving ourselves. And so he took what our Father says to us here in Leviticus and he amplified it for us. I wonder how many of you have ever noticed this. Jesus takes what God says to us here in Leviticus and he amplifies it for us. Where does this happen? It happens in the Gospel of John. It happens in the Gospel of John chapter 13. He says it after he models it. It's that moment when he is about to do the most sacrificial thing of all, the most loving thing of all, of giving his life. But before that, before they even come to the table, he disrobes and washes the feet of his disciples. And in that, in that moment, Jesus, then after he's done, in the midst of their confusion, he says this. Hear this in light of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you would also love one another by this all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What Jesus is saying here in John chapter 13 is here's a new way of looking at what my father has told you all along. Here's a new way of understanding what my father has been trying to say to you. The old way, the way you heard up to now, is love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're struggling with this, if you're struggling with loving yourself, hear it in a new way. Love your neighbor as I have loved you. Beloved, this reframing is crucial for us. Our love for other people is not based on how we would love ourselves, but it's based upon how Jesus loves us. 
Jesus is telling his disciples to love people unconditionally because that's how Jesus loves everyone. Love, like grace, faith, and hope is a divine gift. We can love ourselves. We can love each other because God loves us unconditionally and completely through Jesus Christ. This means that our choice of loving people, the choice to love ourselves, is not dependent upon how we think we deserve to be treated or how we think others deserve to be treated. It's based upon our knowledge, our conviction, our hope of how Jesus treats us all. And what that means is that we can love ourselves. What that means is that we can love anyone. We can love the stranger. We can love our family. We can truly love our friends. We can love even our enemy. We can love our neighbor because the most powerful expression of our Father's love for us is that he is with us. That Jesus walks beside us. That his resurrected life, the power of his spirit, lives within us. And so you see, Holiness need not be reserved for extraordinary or perceived super spiritual people among us. Encountering holiness need not be a rare experience or an isolated occurrence. When love, divine love revealed in Christ becomes the expression of our lives, God's holiness is available to us. Our Father's word to us through Moses is less of a command, be holy as I am holy, and more of a promise. Something akin to, you are mine. I claim you as my children. All I have is yours. Therefore, because I am holy, you will be holy. Beloved, we partake of God's holiness in the same way that we partake of God's image. Holiness consists of ordinary, everyday godly acts. Holiness is taking care of our families. Holiness is looking after the rights of the poor or a stranger. Holiness is choosing honesty and truth. Holiness is paying workers, treating disabled people with respect. Holiness is reframing from malicious gossip. That's sacred. That's holy. Holiness is honoring our elders. Holiness is taking time for study and reflection. Holiness is forgiveness. That's holiness. That's sacred. In other words, it's not about being holier than thou at all. It's about living out of our identity as the beloved, precious, sacred children of our Heavenly Father. It's about experiencing the sacred, the holy from the recognition that each and every person is like us, that each and every person bears the image of God, that each and every person was in Jesus' line of sight when he hung from the cross, that each and every one of us was counted in Christ's victory as he broke through the tomb and put death in its grave and open the way to eternal life. Beloved, let us be holy as God is holy. Let us love our neighbors, love ourselves as Christ has loved us. It's a command, but it's also an invitation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us unconditionally. Thank you for making us holy. Not telling us to be holy, not telling us to be loving, but enabling us, empowering us, coming alongside us, in us, teaching us how to love. To love you, to love each other, and in the expression of that love to experience your holiness. 
break through the resistance that we still have, the ways in which we twist what you say and get it wrong or make it about us rather than about you. And Lord, reveal to us in the ordinary moments, the everyday moments of our lives, the sacredness of your presence, the opportunities to receive your love. And out of that receiving, to give your love away to our family, to our dear friends, to the strangers, the people we don't even know, and yes, Lord, even to the people that we perceive as our enemies. Lord, enlarge our hearts and help us to look each other in the eye, to stop long enough to learn each other's name, and to pause even longer to realize that it's a sacred moment, it's a worshipful moment, it's a moment where you are present in a unique way when we listen to how you are writing the story of another life. When we take the time, dare to articulate how you are writing the story of our lives. We are your children, Lord. You are our Father. We give you ourselves because there is nowhere else we can go. No one else who has the words of eternal life that are ours in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.